Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. What does the future look like? By melting business acumen and innovative technology, Deloitte can help you build the future only you can imagine. They can help engineer solutions for your business reality today and your vision for tomorrow to get you to a world where you don't just dream it, you build it. See how you can engineer advantage with Deloitte at Deloitte.com slash US slash engineering advantage. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until that presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case. Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com, designed for work. Hey, everybody, it's Neon from The Vergecast. On this week's interview episode, Russell Brandom and I talked to Matt Mitchell. He's the founder of Crypto Harlem, an organization in New York City that helps activists protect themselves from hackers and cyber attacks. Obviously, activists of all kinds want to use digital tools. Matt calls them a force multiplier. But there's a lot of interest in hacking and disrupting those tools from governments, from rivals, from foreign adversaries. Matt talks a lot about the FBI and the NSA. When their files get declassified, you can see the amount of interest they have in investigating activist groups. So Matt works with those activists to outline the threats, research new ones, and develop strategies for mitigating those threats. I love this conversation because it's way beyond just like using Signal. Matt talks about the capabilities and methods that attackers use to go after activists and how he works with those activist groups to get more sophisticated and protect themselves. So check it out. It's Matt Mitchell on The Vergecast. Matt Mitchell, you're the founder of Crypto Harlem. You help activists protect themselves. You're a hacker yourself. Welcome to The Vergecast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Russell Brandom is joining us too. Welcome, Russell. Oh, yeah, I'm here. So real quick, tell me, what is Crypto Harlem? Crypto Harlem is a space where we all come together and we learn about over-policing, surveillance of folks in the inner city, and what we can do to circumvent that surveillance and protect ourselves from it. So um, it's a, a thing that I've been doing for like six years now. Wow. And um Maybe maybe more than that now. I'm losing count. And, you know, um, normally it takes place in Harlem, hence the name. Kind of weird if it was in the middle of Williamsburg. And um, we have folks from the inner city. We have grandmas, grandpas. We have cybersecurity professionals. I go through my uh, network and always invite people. And they get a kick out of it. They get a kick out of it, the, the folks who are there, to be like, oh, wow, like this is a person uh, I'm learning about is really cool and they actually do this hacking thing. And the cybersecurity professionals, they don't really get to talk to regular folks a lot. So they really enjoy being able to talk to a different kind of audience that's really diverse and a, a big mix. But, you know, that's what it is. And I think it's a, a really important effort. And I try to do it as often as I can, as my schedule allows. And I've even thrown them in um, like one-offs in like Oakland and in Miami and in Chicago and, you know, just trying to do my thing. Yeah. Uh, so Matt, the other thing you do is you train activists on how to protect themselves. There's a lot of ways activists are in danger, but particularly when you're working online, as so many of us now do, those dangers spread. What is that work of helping activists protect themselves? What does that look like for you? Well, you know, technology is a force multiplier, to use a military term. Technology 
could allow one podcaster, you know, one person in a basement with a microphone to reach millions and millions of people uh, without needing like distribution networks or media, et cetera. And activism heavily relies on technology. And, you know, technology used to be the wheel and fire, but technology now are, you know, encrypted messages, emails, uh, social media, et cetera. And the first thing I do when I'm talking to activists is explaining to them that while they are actively trying to do this thing, that's why they're an activist, they're active and other people are non-active, right? They're pushing against the status quo. They're trying to create positive change. And they're doing it because they just feel this is the right thing to do. And I explain to them that, look, this thing that you're doing, it's a little bit more complicated and it's a little bit like a balancing act or a tug of war. And every time you have a small win, those little victories that keep you going, someone else has a small loss. And every time you have those big, like, you know, headline grabbing wins, the things that you never thought were possible, someone had a huge loss. And it's like an inversely proportional relationship. And it's really complicated. And those people are not used to losing because they made the game, they made the rules, and you become a very popular, you know, more like notorious thorn in their side. And they will come at you with anything they have. If you make someone late to a fancy dinner, that's embarrassing to them and they don't get embarrassed and they're going to they're gonna want to, you know, to end this whole thing that you're doing. And a lot of times, more often than not now, it comes through a digital first way. So give me some examples of, of what that is. There's so many examples. Um, for example, I was just watching this documentary about environmentalist animal rights activists, right? And so um, it was called um, The Animal People because during their trial, they were called The Animal People. These are the bad animal people, right? And The Animal People were just a group of kids from the suburbs, right? Seven kids who were like, you know, we're going to go after this uh, you know, laboratory in Europe that's doing vivisection and torturing monkeys and beating up puppies and punching dogs in the face and things like that, right? The, these activists successfully, through nonviolent means, closed this um, annoying and aggravating to means, but still nonviolent, forced this lab to close, forced them to get delisted from NASDAQ, all kinds of issues for them financially. Long story short, these folks all went to prison, right? And uh, part of the trial, we find out through Freedom of Information Act many years later, was the FBI rolled out a hacking team to hack these activists, get into their computers. They had really good security culture, right? They, they, they knew not to say too much, not to do too much, et cetera, all that stuff that, you know, need to know basis, all the stuff that activists will, will, will stick to. But they also used PGP encrypted emails, which is a new thing, right? A lot of people weren't doing that back then, right? This is like basically like the 90s. And, um, the FBI could not get their keys, could not get their passwords, so used malware and attacks on their laptops and computers to try to get into their machines. And no one even knew what this stuff was back then. Like, there's a million examples. I used this one because I watched this movie the other day because it came out on Netflix. Um, there's countless examples of this happening, and you'll never know. It's very quiet. And in this particular case, they also had audio surveillance of their plane phone calls because they didn't have apps like Signal at the time for them to use the easy encrypted voice communications. And there are more recordings here than in any other uh, federal investigation. So um, this is real. The amount of time, money and resources, it doesn't make sense to your average activist. They're like, why would they? We're not even doing anything crazy. We're just trying to do what's right. Why would they spend millions of dollars on hackers, plainclothes police to follow us around? 
all video uh, and audio uh, media of like hours and hours, days worth of footage. Why would they do that just for us, for me? It's true, though. It happens all the time. And when you look at the vault, FBI vault, which is like a public available um, released and declassified videos and audio and things like that, you'll see a lot of stuff there that pertains to activism. So uh, this is I mean, it's funny because I feel like when it pops in the news, a lot of it is around some particular vendor that would sell these tools to like the company that would then get used. on. So like, I mean, I think Finn Fisher was like, right. And then we had hacking team. And now more of the focus is on NSO group. And they're always sort of these a lot of times based in Europe. And like, you never know how many people they're selling to. But then I often... I mean, I don't want to like get discouraged, but it does sort of feel like you pull out one weed and then there are just five more. I mean, are you do you feel like there is some path towards these tools not being available to powerful people anymore? Or is this just sort of what the landscape is now? It's an industry. There's money to be made. Yeah. And it's completely deregulated. And so it does make sense to go after the worst of the worst. But you know, you, there's another one behind it. You want to go after the worst industrial polluter? There's another one behind them because there's money to be made. And worse of all, there are nation states that have militarized this hacking situation. And um, the tools and resources available are now leaked online. So, you know, even our, uh, and our being USA, the United States, through the NSA, through the CIA, through the FBI, each of these law enforcement and intelligence entities has their own group of hackers that work there. And then they collect and find major bugs in commercial software and also ways to exploit tools that we use every day. They say something like 80% in the case of the NSA, they report to the company so they can fix it. But the 20%, that really good golden stuff, they keep that and weaponize that. But a lot of times those less weapons are not well defended and they leak onto the public internet. And, you know, um, that's what happened with a lot of these tools. And so therefore, the price of these cyber weapons have dropped. Imagine if you could go into the black market and get a, a machine gun or bazooka for $20. That's basically where we are now. Because those advanced tools leaked onto um, public domain and you can any hacker worth their salt has a copy of it or understands how these things work, the price of committing these cyber attacks has dropped to the point where a lot more companies, a lot more countries, a lot more militaries, a lot more law enforcement, a lot more intelligence agencies, and also random people are able to give it a go. So, I mean, that's like pretty scary. <laughs> it is scary. <laughs> I guess if you're, you, you know, when you're meeting these folks and you're telling them this is what you're up against, where do you go with that, right? Like you're, you're not telling them, hey, like, give it up, let DuPont win or, or whoever it is. You know, you know, how should they operate in a world where this is just out there? Well, yeah, I, I don't just start that with a, hey, thanks for taking me to your cool, patchouli smelling <laughs> coffee shop. I just want to tell you how horrible it is. Yeah. No, I mean, well, first of all, I'm lucky because the audience is not one that's e easily discouraged, right? They're not risk averse. Like these are people who they're, they're really to take the next step or whatever, do that thing that the non-active people are not. That's why they're activists. But I don't start with that. I try to keep it really basic and I try to use a like, community health style of talking to them or I'll, I'll just say, like, for example, like, you know, I always tell people, if you're like Doctors Without Borders and you show up in a village of people who don't know what modern Western medicine is and they have their own ideas on how to stay healthy and safe, you can't tell them about like, this is cancer or let me talk about Ebola on day one. Like, that's just 
that's you're just going to crush their spirits. It's not helpful at all. So what you want to do as someone who's about harm reduction, and that's what you focus on, harm reduction, right? And uh, minimizing and mitigating risk. That's all you can do. You say, look, there are these invisible monsters, these creatures that live on your hands. They're called bacteria. And you got to use soap and water to get rid of them. And if you do that, you'll be okay. And if you just get that baseline up where everyone's washing their hands and the, the chief is washing their hands and, you know, the medicine person is washing their hands and little kids, elderly, then you're like, that rules out a lot of problems, right? So it's the same thing here. So I'll just talk to them about the different baselines that they need to get to. But I will explain it so, you know, that this is a nonstop effort. You always can like level up a little bit. If you go to the gym, you also can get a little more swole, right? So, but it really is like, do you lift or do you not lift? And that's about, that's where it is. So there's like activist stuff, right? Like, okay, you have founded a group. You're all going to protest de Blasio. That's an easy one. There's the basic stuff, right? Which is don't send out encrypted emails, like move all your stuff to Signal, there's like a, a basic set of, I think, pretty well understood stuff. You're teaching them how to use Signal or are you saying what I worry about, which is the massive amount of attack surface area that comes just from using the internet now and buying devices and having that stuff in your life and in your home? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually don't teach them about Signal and stuff like that. Because like I come at them from like a, I'm a professional and I'm an expert in this. So I teach them about the capabilities and methods of their adversaries. Like, this is what's going to stop you from moving forward. And this is also where every tool you use has a problem and it breaks. And so you just decide so they can be an educated consumer. Because you might tell people like, hey, use this thing, send these encrypted emails, use Signal, and you're good. That's for like a normal, boring person, not for activists. Activists need a different game plan. They need to learn about, like, do you have a data retention policy? What data are you creating every day? What's your exhaust of data, your data footprint? And how quickly do you remove it? Do you delete it? So that's a big problem because they usually amass large amounts of data. And I tell them, look, this is going to end not with you, uh, you know, your favorite movie, whether it's like Hackers and someone's going to be like Hack the Planet or whether it's Braveheart and someone's like Freedom. Like That's not how it ends. This ends with you (laughs) in a courtroom with a lawyer next to you. And you are talking about deciding whether that lawyer has a folder worth of evidence that you're defending against or those cardboard boxes upon cardboard boxes upon pallets of evidence that they're, you're defending, that they're defending against. So we're just talking about when you have your day in court, how can we make sure that your sentence is as low as possible? Because that's reality, right? Uh, if you're an activist today, there's a huge amount of data that is being collected about you that you do not control. And then there's even more amounts of data that's being collected about you that you do control. And I just try to get them to get that down to as little as possible. Give me an example of data that activists don't control that you help them get into line or, or manage more efficiently. Sure. Let's talk, let's talk about the six people who decided to meet at that Starbucks about your, your de Blasio meeting. They all had to get there. And we all have phones. Some of us have the fanciest, newest iPhone, like you. And other people have, you know, like some basic boost mobile phones. But we all have phones. Those phones are on. Those phones are connecting to cell towers so they can maintain service and the location of those phones. You cannot turn off location services of how your cell phone works, right? So you can say, oh, I put it in a Faraday bag, wrapped it in foil, put it in airplane mode, and I moved forward into the, to get to the Starbucks. But then you passed all kinds of cameras 
whether they're attached to an ATM or whether they were attached to a, a police box that's just surveilling that corner or that street or that block and you pass through it. And these are the pieces of data that you don't control, right? You might have, uh, you know, like, of course, you don't want to have like a, a home assistant in your house, like an Alexa or an Amazon or something like that. You wouldn't want that in the space. But there's people around you who have data and there's an imprint, an outline that's missing, and that's your movements, right? So the pictures, the video, all the data that's collected, that's the data that you do not control. Uh, You might be getting junk mail. That means that your address, your name, first and last, whether it's your actual government or some alias, that's just easily findable. I I could search a data broker's website or I can pay a data broker to collect and find that information on you. That's very hard for you to control. But then there's the information you do control. That's the the words you say, the words you type, you control that. And where you put them and how you manage them, you can control that. You know, so when you go to that Starbucks, did you pay with cash or did you pay with your credit card? Did you pay with your Starbucks app? So it's about that more holistic viewpoint, not just the basics that we talk about when you're reading a quick article or things like that. Because activism, it's different from living in this crazy world that we all live in. Right? We've all seen uh, the, the great hack or the big hack or whatever that is. We've, we've all understand, you know, from I get it, like they can see my tweets or something. Right. So this is deeper. It's another level. <laughs> Right, because you're actually not just a regular boring person who has to deal with hackers who just criminally want to just take your credit card or just create chaos, right? Or a normal person who has to deal with like you know over policing or has to deal with uh, uh, ridiculous rules against them because of um, what law enforcement is able to do or what the city is able to do or whatever. Data brokers who make an industry out of, especially in the United States where we don't have a lot of privacy protections if you don't live in California, your, your data trail and selling and monetizing that. That's a normal person. But now you have to deal with that plus it's compounded with your activism. So it's about having that deeper conversation, but also explaining that you can win this and it's a hopeful conversation at the end of the day. So this is what's so interesting about like this side of cybersecurity to me, because it feels like 99% of the time when people are talking about a lot of the same things you're talking about, data exhaust, retention, what's your footprint, it's in the context of corporate cybersecurity where, you know, I'm running this app, I'm holding all this user data, and I need to make sure that, you know, I promised the person when they signed up for the app, hey, I'm not going to let this sort of get out onto the just whoever wants it. But it's fundamentally sort of maintaining the status quo, right? It's like, we have the data, and we want to maintain control over everything that happens to it, so that these sort of forces of chaos that are coming from, you know, the criminal parts of the internet can't bust through, right? Whereas, you know, the people you're talking with, they're really kind of going out there into new territory. And it's sort of, how do I protect myself once I'm on once I'm on the other guy's turf? Exactly. It's a completely new territory and there aren't a lot of professionals in this area. So the first thing is people do have an idea what the digital risk and threats are, but they actually don't understand what's in the wild. Like what's an actual, you know, capability or method of law enforcement or de Blasio, you know, or, uh, you know, anything like that. So it's really just guessing, which is not good. So you want um, what people say are an evidence-based approach. You want to defend against what's probably likely out there based on past research. So a lot of my work is reading cases, whether the cases are about the the worst of the worst, as they say. So that might be people who are in the trade of illegal images or images of child abuse or people who are selling narcotics to folks, you know, things like that, right? Um, It's the same 
methods that are used to go after those folks or to go after maybe like a terrorist or or whatever the, the, the bad person of the day is. And people are more likely to speak on those methods, right? Because we all, no matter what your viewpoint is, this is an enemy and this is criminalized behavior that everyone's on board. This is bad, right? So people tend to get a little bit too much into it and they'll share a lot more information than they will if you research what happened to that person with the green po- uh, Greenpeace placard or something yesterday. Like that case is going to be really tight. Uh, there's going to be a lot, a lot of information about how evidence was gathered there. But it's the same maybe individual out there that after they're done catching this person, they're going to go after catching the Starbucks anti-de Blasio people, right? So it's about understanding that. And it begins with things like, you know, when you're when you read a privacy statement from a company, let's say it's like, you know, talk about normal cybersecurity, a, a normal kind of like, I understand, I want to control my data person might read, uh, how do we sell your data, right? Or what do we, how do we collect your data? While an activist might read that section that says, how do we deal with legal requests and government requests, right, for, for information, which may or may not be a subpoena or a warrant. It could just be someone saying, hey, can we look at that user's account? And, you know, when I talk to activists, the first thing I tell them is every technology that you use has to deal and has to work with the people who you're worried about, right? Which is mostly uh, someone who's going to try to paint you as a horrible person for trying to create positive change. And that is usually um, could be, you know, there's a force that has power, people who are sitting on the seats of power who do not want to be removed from those seats of power, and they enforce the status quo that you're trying to change. So those folks are involved in this as well. And they're going to use these uh, requests to find out more about you and to criminalize your behavior and eventually stop what you're doing. And that is a, there's a red carpet that technology companies roll out for these people, right? And uh, you need to know about it. So when I talk to folks, the first thing I'll tell them is like, hey, you use Google and everyone uses Google, right? So then I'm like, look, there's a website, that's Google's red carpet, law enforcement request um, system for Google, right? And that's lers.google.com. Go there, look at that thing, see what that looks like. That's what someone just says, hey, I want to know what Russell's searching on a Tuesday night, you know, um, at home, right? And Twitter has the same thing. Instagram has the same thing. Facebook has it as well. Facebook's red carpet is facebook.com slash records, right? If you have a domain name that's like, um, NYPD and the de Blasio case, or maybe it's like, um, you know, uh, Pakistani intelligence. Right? It doesn't matter. If your domain name matches, they just put in your email. It's on the database of known domains. You'll get an email that's like, hey, if you want to know how to make a request about a Facebook user's profile, fill out this form, tell us what you want, and our legal team will look at it. And depending on where you are and who you are, depends on whether we'll push back hard or we might just fulfill the service. This is great. When you go to the Facebook one, all you have to do is check a box that says I'm an authorized law enforcement agent or government employee investigating an emergency and this is a request. And you just like check it. Yeah, but then you got to put in your email. You're, if you're a law enforcement, your your email isn't at Gmail. But it does. But the problem is maybe that it doesn't matter whether you're day one out of um, police academy or whether you're a lieutenant on the or someone who's on a special special caseload that's like looking for certain things, right? So it doesn't matter who you are, long as you are law enforcement, you can fill this thing out. So that's problematic. As you talk to activists, that's one side, protect yourself. Do you do you talk to these platform companies? Of course. About how to better because pro- you know so many of the CEOs of these companies believe that they are helping activists change the world by connecting them by you know, giving them a voice. You know, there's a there's a department in that company that tells you, be yourself, 
show us, you know, what you're about. And they'll latch on to movements that are, you know, and, and commercialize those movements. So, you know, they'll say like Twitter is like, oh, Black Lives Matter, you know, like, well, you know, we're going to wear this. Um, Jack's going to wear a shirt, you know, so whatever. Right. Jack loves the shirt. Yeah. But that's totally different from the department that's like, oh, yeah, you want to know what this person's doing and you want to read their DMs. OK, you know, totally different, <laughs> you know, and and they also have the problem of Twitter had these people who were working there. One guy who was on the payroll of United Arab Emirates working with the Saudis, who then compromised another person who got them on the payroll, right? And then, you know, Twitter's not used to looking at that. So you have many different inroads to these organizations. You have the legal department, which is maybe working against Black Lives Matter with Jack's wearing a shirt. And then you have people who are trying to actively get individuals into the company because they're in positions of trust. They have access to data. And that data, it's like, well, we can buy $3 million worth of malware or we could pay this dude some gambling debt from that last trip he went to Vegas and also lean on him with these videos of what he was doing last night and uh, boom, give him 30000 and get the data we want that way. So you got to understand like what is actually happening out there. This is a real thing. So Twitter looked into this employee, tried to figure out like whether what was going on is really that they were um, searching people who worked on the tour projects, um, DMs and what they were doing online and trying to get data on like where their phones were connecting to Twitter from and things like that, or whether this is not true. And that employee disappeared only to pop up in the UAE working for the government. So this is the, the kind of thing that you'll tell an activist. It's not just install signal. It is weird to have that as like part of the threat model is like probably Facebook can pay the like people with access enough that they're not susceptible to blackmail, but maybe Twitter can't. Like rents in San Francisco getting pretty high. It's getting hot. Like, <laughs> so wait, you were talking about like, you know, reading the news to, to find out sort of what tools people are using. I'm curious. So you, as you're probably aware, like the, the this Clearview app has been a huge sort of wave just rolling through and, you know, essentially saying, I have a picture of this person's face is there, can you put a name to this face, right? And this is very much like we're in the Starbucks. We talked to the Starbucks manager, maybe slipped him a hundred bucks. He gave us the surveillance video and we found, we have this sort of surveillance footage of this person's face, but we don't know who they are. Can we plug it into Clearview AI and it'll give us a name? And it turned out that there were some really significant sort of companies and just sort of all sorts of, you know, sketchy outfits using this. I guess, was that, a surprise for you was that is that changing the way you're thinking about like controlling the data and everything no no it's not a surprise but, <laughs> <laughs> but i mean like it's kind of like people were like trump is so bad it's crazy trump stuff and i'm like well it was always bad now that you're with me that's great so same thing with clearview ai i'm like that is great you know like i'm so happy that that story broke and i'm you know, there's a lot of other people I know who do the work that I do, and they were involved in, like, helping make that story happen. And I'm like, that's dope. Like, you know. And we should say, Cashmere Hill, New York Times, like, did an amazing job on that. Yes. Cash, you did a great job. You know, hit me up. And the, the people who were able to say, we research what law enforcement is spending their money on. We saw this come up multiple times. We can't find info. Let's hit up Cash. So there's people who did that, too. Right? So that's important, too. And, you know, there's a lot of us out here who... We have to see what's not there by putting together what is there. You see these weird outlines. And you're like, what is that shape? What is that shape? And it's things like Clearview AI. But how did Clearview AI even work? Well, here's how it worked. It just grabbed your face. It wasn't like 
wow, this guy's a genius. No offense. The guy who made Trump here. <laughs> like, it grabs your face from the open internet. Like, just sits there browsing the internet, acting like it's a user of Facebook, acting like it's a user of Google, acting like it's a user of Flickr. And it just collects and collects faces. A huge, ridiculous face database. And then it uses facial recognition software that's out there. And you can make a poor man's version of Clearview AI with enough patience and TensorFlows uh, from Google's, like, you know, free tech. So uh, the problem isn't that they made this. And if they made it, who else maybe made it before they made it? Collective consciousness is not the most simple. It's a really simple idea. Even when Google um, Glass was out, they were like, we're not going to make a version of this that can take a face and run it through a search database. But I can do that today. I can take your face. I could run it through Yandex. I could run it through TinEye. I could run it through Google Images. And I'll get my own results. And then that's like a really basic search. That's a five-minute search. Now you can just use technology and make it run faster, smarter, better, and you'll end up in the best search, right? So is it a surprise to me? No. But it's important that it changes the game and the outside. It changes the game for one, the average person. It's like, you know what? I don't really have any skin in this game, but that's weird. I don't know why, but I feel like that's wrong. Like, that's important. And then the person who cares about their data, who's like, I'm a privacy person. I just like, you know, I'm a paranoid and I don't like when they're doing that. And that's crazy. It blew my mind. But the activists, they need to already know that this technology exists. And let me tell you who's using that technology before the story dropped, right? And how they're using it. So, um, like, you know, we're talking about going back to protest where the law enforcement had airplanes flying in circles, taping videos of individuals and when the ACLU asked, like, hey, you know, we see that there is these protests, whether it's like a, um, a protest in, in Baltimore, let's say. Right. And we, we think that these planes were picked up by these nerds who were just looking with their um, with their basic data solutions to just look at radio signals and see these planes that aren't repeating certain call signs. And let's figure out where these things are. And uh, ACLU said, hey, FBI, if you have if these plans exist, we want evidence on these plans. And the, when they put in that FOIA request, they got back videos of hours and hours of infrared and, and like high resolution shots of zooming in on protests where you can see people's faces, things like that. And it's on Vault. If you go to the FBI Vault, you could pull those, um, those videos today. So it's like, well, why did they want this video? What looks weird? Why are they scanning this particular way? It's obviously like the face is an important um, asset here, right? Not just because I could see that face, but I could turn the measurements of where the shadows of their noses and their eyes and their ears into more information. Right. Let me uh, try to play devil's advocate here. I don't know if that's the right phrase, but I'm going to go with it. Isn't some of this technology also good for the activists? I think about face recognition a lot. I think the killer app for the AR glasses, you mentioned Google Glass, but the killer app for Apple's AR glasses is you put them on and you never have to have that moment where you recognize a face but don't know the name again in your life. Apple puts out that product, I buy it immediately. No, no questions asked. I will, <laughs> I'll have a superpower. I'll know everybody. I remember I, I got drunk with you six years ago. We talked about these five things. Like That would be incredible. There's also an element of you're an activist. You're protesting a, a board meeting. You're seeing the lawyers go in and out. Suddenly you can identify them. Right. Suddenly you can you, you know who the players are who are talking to this company who are involved in these spaces. You know where they're you can build other sets of connections. You can you can do all kinds of things. Is there a value to to having it more broadly and democratically available as a technology? Or is it, wow, this is getting really creepy and the cops are overusing it. We should we should turn it off. 
That's a good question. And I would say there's zero value, but I'll, I'll explain. Because yeah. it's basically, technology is a beautiful thing. I got into hacking because, you know, I was a kid and I had a computer. And I thought this is amazing. And I wanted to share that. You know, I wanted to be able to like play chess with someone in the Middle East who's like millions of miles away, but felt like it's just milliseconds. That's great. That's the promise of it. But technology, like all other things in science, can be weaponized, right? Like, you know, nuclear power can be used to run a city for pennies or it could destroy a city and turn to ashes, right? So it depends on who you are. Same thing. So if we say surveillance technology, we're going to weaponize surveillance and we're going to weaponize, like it's a kind of basic doxing, right? And we're going to use it to help us in our protest. It's kind of like saying, well, they have weapons like guns and we just have uh, rocks. We're going to start using guns. Well, you're going to start this arms race where there's a ceiling you're going to hit and they don't have one. So it doesn't actually end well when you're using, like, hey, they have an NSA. We're going to start our own NSA. Well, their NSA is sitting in a position that your NSA is not because their NSA is plugged into the people sitting on the seats of power who have uh, disposable income and have everything to lose, right, with having you have a, a minor win here, right? So it's not David and Goliath. It's just stupid. So it does not make sense. <laughs> the one, the one evidence you do see, you were talking about the Yandex face search, right? Which is if, if a person has, if you have a photo and you want to know who is in it, or even like a car and you want to find another picture of the car, the Yandex reverse image search is, is one of the better ways to do that. One of the places you see it used most is the folks at Bellingcat who are doing the open source intelligence. And often, you know, in a very sort of, pro-social activisty way of saying like, hey, Russia did this thing. They're trying to say that there aren't these troops in Ukraine, that they weren't involved in this. Like, but we can see that this car was and, and really sort of, you, you know, it is similar to putting together the evidence file, as you're describing. Uh, of course, it you know, also as you're saying, like, it's a little difference when the and the evidence file is like this compelling blog post versus like, a legal proceeding to put someone in prison. Like, but it's important. We need compelling blog posts. And, you know, Brad Moses, Elliot, you know, what's up, Bellingcat? Yeah, I mean, I've got people who do this work, you know, like Bellingcat, they're, they're good folks over there. And there's many OSINT, open source intelligence teams working on stuff like who was that neo-Nazi in that photograph, right? Or who was the person that punched this, this person in the face or whatever. And I'm not saying that that is not important work. And I'm not saying that that's not valuable. But what I'm saying is these are weapons that are built with a mindset and by a, a group that we're, we're, we're not, we shouldn't follow their playbook, right? Their playbook was built on to like oppress and stop certain things from happening, not to create this beautiful freedom of, of awesome possibilities of things happening. And yeah, sometimes it is good to identify, but um, having a, like some kind of database of faces search, it's, it's going to burn you more than it's going to assist you. So, yeah, o OSINT makes sense. Uh, understanding what you're up against makes sense. Uh, intelligence gathering makes sense. All this stuff makes sense. But um, it's not like, you know what? There's a good side to this. We're better off if there was none of this technology. If you were to meet uh, Martin Luther King or, or, or uh, Gandhi or anybody today, they'd be, you know, a young person trying to organize people on social media and all this other stuff. And that version of them is going to be a lot less successful than the version that was handing out things on paper and just talking to people over some tea and chai, right? And um, all the tools and wonderful things that we could use as activists, people who want to create positive change with technology, all the tools we could use it for are not worth 
what could be, it could be used against us, the ways it could be used against us. But we have to live in today, right? We have to live in the day. So there are people who are hacktivists, people who are, you know, like they're going to say, look, I'm going to take out um, the power in this place, or I'm going to disrupt or create chaos, or I'm going to spread rumors about Oprah or whatever it is, right? Like, you know, <laughs> whatever you want to do, you know, like have at it. That was QAnon, right? They were, they were saying Oprah was about to strike. That's yeah. right. <laughs> so, um, and whatever you want to do, like that's disruptive too. And that does put ripples on the status quo, but in the long game of positive change, like is this generationally going to make things better for your kids? Probably not. But we have to deal with what's going on right now. So, you know, that's that's where I live and that's how I talk to people. And that's why the the work that I do, it's I'm in service to these folks. And, you know, I I really idolize and and I look up to the people who are willing to really put themselves in at a lot of risk to just make a move the needle a little bit on positive change. So. I want to come back. You made this claim. These famous activists of the past would have not been as successful if they had tried to use the tools of today. And I just want to push on that a little bit. There have been some remarkably effective activist movements that are primarily digital. We, I don't know they're as effective as we want them to be. Uh, but you, you brought up Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter went from a hashtag to a cultural phenomenon that is like shorthand for a lot of things for a lot of people now that only happened because of the power of social platforms. And, you know, hopefully one day it's even more successful at its goals. It's going to take some time. It's not that old, but how do you square that? That idea that the previous kind of activism may have been uh, more successful over time, but the new tools put sort of a limit or a cap on how successful activists might be. I wouldn't say a cap. I would say a, a danger. Cause I mean, like the FBI was all over Dr. King, right? I mean, yeah, but it took some time. And there's a lot that when you look at the FBI files that are public, they didn't have that they would have had in seconds, right? <laughs> if he was on Facebook doing that. So right. that's like his entire social network of thousands of other religious leaders in five minutes would have been drinked up by Geophedia or data miner and plotted and mapped and searched and, you know, sentiment analysis on everything they said. And, you know, it's just a completely different ballgame. And, um, you know, when you bring up organizations like, for example, the Movement for Black Lives, where I worked to do digital safety training and working with the founders of a lot of these organizations. And, you know, there's 60 organizations in the, uh, plus in that, um, that coalition, that umbrella group. And, you know, whether it's in BYP 100 or Black Lives Matter and Million Hoodies, groups you might know, groups you might not know, you know, there's the commercials and TV and like, you know, a Kardashian wants us to throw you a Pepsi. There's that version, <laughs> right? And then there's the reality, the real version. And what we can in the move for Black Lives, we have made real change happen, right? Uh, but real, but there's an effort. Let's not, let's not confuse real change with commercial change, right? There's an effort to let the steam out, right? When people are angry and they don't like their mayor and they're like, de Blasio has to go, if you said no protest, no one could say anything bad, there is a steam and that would lead to pressure. And that pressure would lead to a, a high enough level that it would be higher pressure than the container that was holding it and it would blow. But so, I mean, are you saying like the real change is like not actually international like consciousness of the thing, but it's local organizations putting pressure on local governments, right? I mean, especially for the movement for Black Lives, it's a policing thing it's not about like setting federal policy necessarily. It is really like, you know, I live in Ferguson. The police chief in Ferguson is the problem. 
and I'm going to get a bunch of people in Ferguson and sort of in the area to, to sort of make this hyper-local change? Well, it's a lot of change. It's it's a whole, like, if you can read, they're like, hey, this is what we're, this is our platform, this is what we're wanting to change, and globally, nationally, but it actually goes all the way down to, to right outside, right? So, and it does begin with, hey, you know, who's the district attorney here in Ferguson, things like that. And, you know, like, just to say, like, you know, I am lucky to work with these people who are, in their history books, when we look back, they're going to be the people who we read about who are really making positive change happen. And, um, you know, I, I remember, like, I was in Ferguson and I was looking at things and there's, it's just, it's really complicated. We have to use technology because those are the tools that are available to us, right? But they're also the tools, they're the master's tools, right? And the technology we, t- we use tends to be the commercial technology that's weaponized against us as more than it's, like, yeah, for every benefit of being able to get like you say, like that, uh, how many likes and follows that people retweeted my message? That's great. But how many people are putting requests in through the back door, through that red carpet against me? So, yeah, it's like it's, it's, it's real change happens with real people, real lives in the real world. It's not that the people in on the other side of the planet can read about me and, and know that I, I wanted something. Well, and so the, and this is the Audrey Lord quote you're like referencing, like you can't use the master's tools to, to tear down the master's house. And it's like, for you, these technology things are are those tools, like hundred percent. So th- those are the tools that are in our technologies that we can't um, we can't use, but we have to understand how to exploit, right? Like we don't we don't abolish and stand away from them. They're there, and there's ways you can use them. So when I'm speaking to activists, first thing I'll tell them is, look, it's great the things you're doing. Please understand, like how every little thing positive you do is going to is there's a backlash there there's blowback there and you can mitigate that uh, understand that technology is wonderful and amazing that's why you're talking to me I'm a tech person right and so everything i tell you is going to be how you can use technology in a good way but there's a negative side to that too there's a dark part of that technology you got to prevent and protect yourself from and some technologies are better than others so the technologies that are those commercial technologies where you're going to get the non-active people to activate them and reach them there's a price for reaching in Right. But then there's other technologies like, you know, open source technologies and uh, surveillance circumvention technologies that are they're going to be protecting you. And they're going to there's less of that. And how to make those measurements is most of what we talk about. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels. But now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between so you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected, and 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. 
With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So if I pull back from this a little bit, there's the, the sense that, okay, you can't use Twitter and Facebook and YouTube to to really foment the movement because they have these red carpets for uh, law enforcement, for big business, for whoever. What are the alternatives? Is there a decentralized open source set of tools that helps people gather, organize, make change that are not subject to... Because there is an older internet in which there were a lot of those tools. We are constantly talking about how the big platforms have taken those tools away. What I will say to that is... You have to use both. And that other suite of tools are, I explain that instead of there being a silver bullet tool or a silver bullet Microsoft Office suite for activists, understand that there's a drugstore, you know, whether it's like Walgreens or CVS, depends on where I am, what country I'm in, it might be the Apertique or whatever it is, right? If I do this work globally, it's understand that there's a difference between aspirin. You might, like signals like aspirin, right? You just discovered aspirin. You're going to use it for everything. You get a bullet wound, you can start rubbing aspirin in there. You know, it's just <laughs> not always protective. <laughs> so yeah, signal is great. It's a secure messenger and it's wonderful. And I have an article that I wrote about how to create an online persona. And it's about like, look, but the weakness of signal, the first weakness is it has to decrypt the message so you could read it, right? So anyone looking over your shoulder can see your message. But the second weakness is it's your phone number and your phone number is linked to a lot of data about you. Like I could take your phone number, do a reverse search on it and tell you who pays that bill, right? I can tell you what carrier it's on and tell you what address that bill gets mailed to. And so it might be good to maybe put a Google voice number or virtual number as your signal number because that doesn't work anymore. So it's about mitigating the harms of these one of these good tools as well, because everything you have to make design decisions when you roll out security tools and software. And some of the design decisions are it needs to be good at this. It'll be weak over here. So just explaining that to folks and giving them the ability to now understand that. Right. So they can they don't need to be technical, but now they can shop correctly and get the correct medicine for them. And so they're like, oh, I get it now. So like. Maybe you want to use this thing called Wire from one of the founders of Skype. It's good for some things, and then it falls down in other areas, right? But if you wanted to have a conference call, don't use Uber Conference, a free conference call. You know, maybe you're having an encrypted group call on WhatsApp, but then you hit the size limit and you want to have a bigger call, you use Wire. Then it is a size limit. Then you got to decide what to do after that. So then maybe you use Zoom, but then Zoom, they're not so good on the privacy side of things. So it's just about explaining that, like, understand what to look for. So just real quick, it's like, if this thing is built, someone had to write it, that person has to feed themselves and pay their rent. And if they're basically doing it for free, that's not good for you. It's not good for your safety and security long-term, right? So they need to be like, so how is it funded? Where do they make their money? How do they monetize and how do they maintain it? How large is the team that builds this and where are they located? What laws can they not fight? They have to abide by. Like if I if I'm in India, in India the law is like, look, if we're doing forensic analysis on your phone, you have to give us the password. If I'm like, hey, I need to decrypt this email, I must have your GPG password, you legally have to give it. So understand like how where these groups are, how that affects their viewpoint on the tool that they built and how um, and then as legal requests come in, what can they and can they not provide? That's very important. 
right? So, and then when in the privacy side of things, like how do they deal with leak government requests and law enforcement requests? That's important too. So it's completely different criteria for shopping for what tool to use. And you could just ask people. You could ask support. You could email the people who write the thing. You could put it up on Twitter. InfoSec Twitter loves battling on going back and forth about what the number one tool is all day. You know, I'm like, we could have built a better tool in the time you went to uh, the, this flame war started on. Oh, that, but that's how you end up with 45 tools. I'm pretty sure this is Google's entire messaging strategy you just described. Yeah, exactly. But I, I feel like, you know, at the end of the day, there should be different medicines for different things. And there's, you just need to understand, like, for everything, there's a side effect and there's a negative side effect and you balance it. And then you can just decide based on that. And then you can say, we can have a meeting without people tracking where we are. And if they do track where we are, we did it in a way that disrupts that. And now they think that there's 50 meetings when there's only one or something like that. So sometimes you you also understand how to use the data creatively. You know, you brought up Zoom. And I, this moment, uh, I think in American cultural history, is bizarrely mediate. We're on a Zoom right now as it happens. But like everyone's using Zoom for all kinds of things. Zoom was not built for this. They're not ready. I mean, this is enterprise software uh, built for bosses to use to talk to their employees. And I think that the call that Zoom should be more aggressively monitoring what happens on Zoom calls pairs with the Zoom is pretty bad at privacy. Like that is exactly the clash that all the software has, right? Right. But at the end of the day, like, you know, you got to know like, well, who made Zoom? If I'm using my criteria for measurement, right? Homie was just like, I work at WebEx. It's the number one streaming video for conferences, but I, I can't use WebEx to talk to my girl and she's in China and I'm in China and I'm trying to talk to her. Like, that's what happened. So this guy was just like, I'm going to make the best software because I'm lonely and horny. You know, so <laughs> that's that's Facebook, too. That's that's all great inspiration. Yeah. I mean, nerds need social contact and they'll try to find a way to make it. But I'm, you were talking about before about like the law enforcement portal stuff. Zoom doesn't even have I think because they never they've sort of been thrust into the spotlight and all this, but they don't do a transparency report in the way that you can go and look to see how many law enforcement requests Google got last quarter or Facebook got last quarter. And, you know, they don't break the data down as intricately as we might like, but they're sort of out there publishing these reports. And Zoom, because they were mostly an enterprise product, because, you know, a couple months ago, no one really thought that they were going to be using it for anything sensitive or at least not personally sensitive. They've just never sort of disclosed any of that. And and so now they're getting more pressure to do it. But it really is this question of like, how much are these tools getting held to this higher standard? Yeah, I mean, transparency reports are such a pain. Like, you know, Dropbox, I love their transparency report, but there's no standard on what they're supposed to look like. It's the first problem. And if you look at the evolution of the Google transparency report, it used to have a lot more information than it does now, but they update that every six months. So even then you're looking into a crystal ball of the past and it's pretty vague. And they only do it because of pressure. So you have to put pressure on companies to do it. Like Zoom Enterprise, they're dirtier than regular. So you think like regular <laughs> consumer-facing product? There's mad cases about industrial espionage, sexual harassment, like Zoom calls where they said this and this and that happened. Like it's purposely designed. Why would we have our legal team build it up to write these reports and make it beautiful, design a website? And that's a real hassle. So it really has to come from pressure. And not every company will bow down and be like, okay, we'll do that for you. There's not like, there's no regulations that they have to do it or it has to be correct. So I think that there's a lot of, a lot behind the motivation of a company to add more um, 
insight and transparency and what and how they deal with these things than others. And it has to do with the founder and the the attitude, the corporate culture of that of that company, because they're human beings inside this company. They're like, you know, there's no good or bad company in my eye. Right. There's no like this company's evil. That company's right. Like, there's a rumor that someone from that company walks into. People are happy to see them, no matter how much of a horrible person we might think they are. So some companies don't care about privacy. They don't and they never will. Some companies yeah. don't care about legal requests and they do the very least. Some companies, if you just tap them on the shoulder, they'll give you everything. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so and that will never change. And it's about understanding what the motivations are and how to tell what companies what. So if you don't see a transparency report, it's more about there's a lot more behind it than you might just think. It's not just because nobody asked them or there wasn't enough pressure. They might just not care at all. All right, Matt. So we've been, I think, talking at a high level. This is this is the work you do. You've been doing it. But let me bring it to now. Everyone's at home. Everyone's communicating on digital platforms all the time. There is some shady business happening in our government and company. Like We see it. How should people think about these platforms right now from the perspective of activism, from the perspective of uh, even just basic stuff. You've got a candidate coming up in the election. You want to organize for that candidate. You want to have a town. Like, how do you think about it now when we're forced to communicate online? Well, I think now is the time to sit, like know the privacy policy of the tools that you're using. If you're lazy, not to blow up a free service and make it not free anymore, but there's visual search, like visual difference software out there, like um, Change Tower or Visual Ping. If you're lazy, just have it watch the privacy policy of your cable provider or your um, favorite software that you need to use every day for work and just watch for when it changes, if it changes, because we're in a day and age of uncertainty and people maybe with the best intentions want to know everyone you talk to and you might have been around by looking through your cell phone records. Like that's real talk right now. And in a moment of desperation, that's when people are less likely to fight for their civil liberties. But once you give something up now, it's there forever. Right. So we have to be really careful about these rules. So if you work at a company, watch their um, agreement to people who that you signed, like dust off that contract you signed when you got the job, you're so excited or ask HR for a copy of it and make sure that you can check for deltas and differences in it, because that's where the um, civil liberty encroachments and things that will hurt you. That's where they come from. Also understand that when you're on the Internet 24 hours a day, you're creating more data exhaust and more trackable information about yourself than ever now, right? So take more precautions and think about it. So, you know, you might clear the history when you're on a browser or use incognito mode so there is no history, but when you visit a website, because it has to look up the um, DNS, unless you're using some browser that has DNS security on it, but let's not get into that. Your your cable provider is, through their, their hardware, they're the default lookup for all of your everything that's going on on your phone, on your laptop, every app, every tool, right? So they're getting what sites your apps are using, like Tinder.com all day, right? And they can see what time you're visiting them. And that paints a picture about who you are, what websites you're on. And even if those websites are HTTPS encrypted, you get the domain name of that website. So you're on ESPN, and then you're on this other site, and then you're on Tinder. And I can see that, and it paints a picture. But if you're using a VPN, that picture is blurred because the cable provider doesn't get it. You're giving that list, which has to exist technically, to someone who promises to throw it out. So I would recommend like use a VPN like um, like Bitmask, where you can use it anonymously for free, right? Or 
use Proton VPN with a, an email that you just made throw away, right? Or, you know, install um, Tunnel Bear and use the free 500 megabytes of, of uh, encryption on it, on the VPN, just so you have a virtual private network that you can use. And yeah, it might disrupt your um, email speed and you might be a little blurrier on your video conference, but thus is the price of privacy. So it's just about understanding like now more than ever that you're home, feeding all your data through one source. It's not compartmentalized. You're not like, this is the data that I create when I'm at work. This is the data I create when I'm in my bedroom. This is the data I create when I'm on the subway or on the street, right? It's now all in one easy to read, easy to drink straw, right? Pool. So now more than ever, use privacy protecting software to blur that image. Yeah, that's really smart. All right, Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. I know it's a weird a weird time and I know that everyone's real busy. It is a weird time, but the positive thing from this time is that biologically we're being forced to realize that everything that we do affects our, our friends, our family, our enemies, every human being, whether you identify as male, female, gender nonconforming, you have a biological system and we're all in this together. And I try to think of it as like, we're all united and we can, we can help each other by small sacrifices. Yeah. And that's what active, active, activism is all about, right? Just taking those small sacrifices to help for the greater good, you know? So, you know, be, be an activist by just sitting your ass at home. <laughs> <laughs> that's about right. It feels like this is the beginning so there's it just there's a lot of panic and chaos. But on the other end of it, it feels like a lot of assumptions, a lot of attitudes might be reset by uh, all of America taking a break for some time. And I, I'm interested to see we're going to spend a lot of time tracking how that works with our their online and digital lives, because having the entire country mediated by the Internet for almost all interaction is unlike anything that's ever happened. It's it's never, never happened before. Yes, you all can work from home if you got that kind of job. Um, but there's a lot of people who can't, a lot of people who are not working from home, like homies bagging groceries for you. There's no, there's no Zoom version of that. Yeah. Um, let's also remember those folks. Yeah, for sure. But even that, like the, your entertainment now, all, you know, Disney's shifting their movies to streaming. Like, yeah. Universal's like, we're dropping movies on streaming instead of theaters because there are no theaters. Right. Yeah. And just that, just that alone, like, okay, now my, all the entertainment that I consume happens over one pipe. Yeah, there's a lot of people who are excited by that because now more than ever, they can get it all from one place, right? Like that's a, yeah. the finger, the details of who you are through your data have never been this crystal clear. Yeah. All right. I got to go install a VPN. Um, so I got to run. <laughs> Do it. Uh, <laughs> Matt, thank you so much. Uh, I would love to have you back sometime soon. This was an amazing conversation. Thank you. Russell, you were also good. Why? Thank you. All right. My thanks to Matt Mitchell, founder of Crypto Harlem, and as always to Russell Brandon for joining me. We'll be back on Friday with a chat show, Tuesday with the interview show. Tweet at me. I'm at Reckless. I love your feedback. I love hearing who you want me to talk to. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>